Okay, so, so God, God, when we look at a situation, God will reveal areas that are wrong is, is essentially the nutshell of what he's saying. I'll do my best to kind of repeat uh, what people say because we are recording uh, because these are going to get posted online. And so uh, we, wanted people, we wanted people to be able to connect online as well. So I will do my best to repeat this stuff just so you guys are like, wait, what are, what, what are they saying? I know it's a little different up here and the room's not so enclosed and I don't feel so claustrophobic and, you know, it's, it's grand. So, yeah, go ahead. Correct. Sure. We're actually going to talk about the conscience tonight uh, and what Paul says about man's conscience. Um, and so any, anything else you guys would add to God's judgment, human judgment? Yeah, Kim, go ahead. Sure. So then I looked at that completely differently. Yeah. I never considered me judging someone, always right. being late. That's right. right. They're always late. They're always late. So then I thought, well, that's me. So I kind of just went along with that. Right. So judgment I is. is judgment sure. But I certainly am supposed to judge their actions. Sure. Sure, absolutely, and I, w- I would totally agree with that. The fact that the judgment um, itself is is holding something to the standard of God, and so yes, God does that perfectly. Uh, but back to kind of what Linda was saying earlier about uh, the command of believers to judge things all all things based upon righteousness is that very thought right there is what you're saying is is that our judgment uh, of things is to be based upon the standard of God. Uh, now I, I want to kind of tie in something that you said, and then we're going to dive into the portion of scripture here that we're going to be looking at because man can have a tendency to be judgmental. Um, And Alicia, what you said as well kind of ties into that because we oftentimes look at things through through our humanness or through our flesh, right? And so our our judgment, if led by the Holy Spirit, right, we we just talked about that or someone just mentioned that, if led by the Holy Spirit, uh, our judgment is is essentially just holding people to the standard of God's righteousness. And we're going to actually see that tonight in our portion of Scripture. So if you would open up with me. Uh, to uh, what book of the Bible? Romans. Romans, I hope. It's on the screen for you guys, so hopefully you get it. Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2. We will have things that hit the screens for you who are note takers once we get there. Um, And so I'll, I'll do my best to leave that stuff up there. So if you would, let's just start in Romans chapter 2. Let's start at verse number 1. And it says, therefore you have no excuse. Now real quick, I want to just stop us. Before I go any further, uh, I don't know if you remember any of this at all, but the word therefore, uh, to open up this, this question, uh, a Bible teacher once told me that anytime you see the word therefore, you should ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Okay, what is the therefore, therefore? So whenever you're reading the Bible, you should always ask it. In this case, Paul is saying that in light of everything I just told you in chapter 1, I'm now going to introduce to you chapter 2. Therefore, because of these things, therefore, you have no excuse. All right, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. 
because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We know that the judge of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Let's stop. Let's stop right there in the first three verses. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. It says, if you think you can judge others, comma, you are wrong. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. If you think you can judge others, you are wrong. It's a little, di- a little bit of a different version. The only way that I would say that the version that I'm using, just so you guys are aware, I use the ESV. Uh, I've had a ton of people ask me what version of the Bible. The reason I use that, there's only four versions of the Bible that are word-for-word translations from the original Hebrew and Greek, and the ESV is one of them. I found this to be a lot closer uh, tied to the original writings is why I use it, Um, and I believe that for many, the King James uh, outside of that would be the next closest, uh, but it's a lot harder for people to understand because of the way that it was written, so that's why I use the ESV. Um, Paul um, pointed out in Romans chapter 1 for us, uh, he pointed out the sin of the most notoriously guilty people. That's what we saw in the first chapter. He's now turning his attention and speaking to those who are generally moral in their conduct. This is who Paul is now addressing. So Paul is assuming here that the people that he's talking to in the the church at Rome are congratulating themselves that they're not like the people that he just described in the first chapter. Like the, the Pharisees, right? The, the people who, who look down uh, their nose at other people. That's who Paul is talking to. Uh, a good example um, of this would be the illustration that Jesus used in one of his parables uh, where he was illustrating the difference between the Pharisees and the publicans. Uh, I believe it was somewhere in Luke, Luke chapter 17 or 18 is the, the parable in which Jesus gives. And if you take those figures, the Pharisees and the publicans, from Jesus's parable, Paul spoke to the publicans in Romans chapter 1. And now in Romans chapter 2, he's speaking to the Pharisees, the people who look good on the outside. This is who Paul is addressing here. Now, many people uh, of Jewish descent in Paul's day, they typified what I'm going to use this word quite often tonight, and it's the word moralist. It's the word moralist. Some, some Bibles may even have that word in the subheading uh, that, that's there. But his words, Paul's words to the church here, uh, or the moralist here, these first 16 verses seem to have a wider application than just to the Pharisees, just to those people. And for example, uh, last week, do you guys remember I quoted a man by the name of Seneca, Do you guys remember me quoting Seneca a couple of different times? Seneca was a Roman politician, but he was a moral teacher. He taught things that came directly out of the Old Testament law and scripture, but he happened to be the tutor of Nero, who was the the Roman emperor at the time of Paul. He was his, his personal tutor. Now, Seneca would would agree wholeheartedly with Paul regarding the morals of most pagans. He would agree with everything that Paul said in Romans chapter 1 as as well as what, what Paul states in other portions of Romans. But a man like Seneca would think 
Uh, I'm different than the immoral people. That would be his thought process. Now, many Christians in Paul's day, they actually admired Seneca for his teachings because he took such strong stands when it came to having Christian morals or having family values. But too often, Seneca tolerated in himself vices not so different than the people that he condemned. He, he followed certain things. And to be honest with you, if you study out Seneca's life and even the life of Nero, one of the most flagrant instances of, of Seneca being complicit uh, was when Nero murdered his own mother. Uh, Seneca knew about it. Um, he knew how Nero was going to do it, and he didn't stop him. In fact, he continued uh, to, to be his tutor following the time in which Nero murdered his mother. And so Seneca was, was the, the typification, so to speak, uh, of who Paul is talking about here. And Paul made a very uh, poignant statement when he said, For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. And, it, and if you think about that, it's like after gaining the agreement of the moralist in chapter 1, Paul's like, I'm, I'm going to gain the agreement of the moralist to condemn the obvious sinner. Now Paul turns that same argument against them. He's like, no, 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 I'm not just addressing them. I'm also going to address you. And this is because at the end of all things, okay, at the end of everything, you who judge practice the exact same thing as what Paul is saying here. Now, I want to try and explain this to you because some of you may be like, well, wait, 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 I'm not, I'm not murdering people and I'm, I'm not. I'm not out having extramarital relationships, and I'm, I'm not doing, right? And so some of, some of you may have already thought that, and I just want to stop us for a moment. As we judge another person, we are pointing to a standard outside of ourselves, okay? We're pointing to that standard, and that standard condemns every single person, including the obvious sinner. It condemns everybody. And since we know that the justice of God, um, or through the justice of God, that we are all without excuse, I want us to notice that the moralist here, uh, by Paul, is not condemned for judging other people. Did you guys catch that in those first couple of verses? He was, the moralist was not condemned for judging people. He was condemned for being guilty of the same manner of things as the obvious sinner. That's why he was condemned. And so uh, think about it like this. Uh, this is something that the moral man would object to. He would say, I'm not like them at all. But Paul begins to demonstrate how they are the same. How they're both sinners in, in a sense. Now, uh, this is how I would best explain to you what Paul is trying to say here. Paul is not saying that you do the identical actions of the people you condemn. He's saying your conduct is the same. Like you sin against light. There is darkness within you is what Paul is trying to say to us. And so God will judge and, and condemn in the sense that Paul is speaking the moralist based upon that very fact that you sin against light. That you have within you sinfulness. And so the point is made very clear right out of the gate in this chapter that that is this, if the moralist is just as guilty as the obvious sinner, how are they going to escape the judgment of God? How are they going to escape it? And, and I want you to look back with me, if you would, at that verse, because he says that, um, 
Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You is emphatic in the question here. And Paul begins to bear down and let his readers know that even he, um, even he is no exception to this principle, that he is still falling into that category of one who will be judged by God because of his sinfulness. I mean, and Paul knew exactly how to get to the heart of every single reader that was, that was going to read what he wrote to them. And so I want you to notice something tonight. I want you to write it down. I want you to think about it. I want you to meditate upon it. I want you to chew over it because Paul did something very specific here. Yeah, you know, I, I tell you guys quite frequently um, on Sundays or any other opportunity that we're commanded to exhort one another as long as it's called today. You guys ever heard me say that before, right? Exhort one another as long as it's called today. And what, what that meant in the book of Hebrews was to, to push our brothers and sisters to a greater capacity in their relationship with God. I think I talked last week a little bit about this is not just telling someone, hey, your dress looks nice, or I really like that tie, or I like your new haircut. This is pushing people to grow in their relationship. And this is what Paul is doing here with the moralist. He's saying something in you needs to change just as much as the obvious sinner. And so this is what I want you to see. Our exhortation to our brothers and sisters should be as forked arrows to stick in men's hearts, not to wound only as other arrows. There to be something that pricks you to the point of, I have to get this out of me. I have to change something within me. And that's what Paul is saying. This is right out of the gate. These first three verses are that very thing. Paul is saying God's judgment is going to come to the moralist. And I'm trying to tell you right now that every single person will be judged by the righteousness of God. And so once you guys get done with that, we're going to move right into the next couple of verses here. In verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5. And it says... Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It will be revealed. Paul begins to point out that the moralist himself presumes upon the goodness and the forbearance and the patience or the long-suffering, as some versions read, of God. Which, I mean, if you think about it, all of those things, the goodness and the forbearance and the long-suffering or the patience of God should really bring believers into humble repentance instead of an attitude of superiority. Did you guys catch that? Those three things that Paul lists should cause humility within the life of a believer, not superiority. And so, yes, go ahead. What was a lot? Um, your delivery to us. Okay.
okay? You don't have to. You don't have to have anything to contribute. That's, that's perfectly fine. That's why I'm here, to contribute. Goodness here in Scripture may be considered or should be considered uh, God's kindness to us in regards to our past sin. Okay, God's goodness should be regarded as God's kindness to us. Like he's been good to us because he has not yet judged us though we deserved it. That, that's what God's goodness is. And when Paul says that God is forbearing or has forbearance, we should consider forbearance also as God's kindness towards us in regards to our present sin. Right, So his goodness is our past sin. His forbearance is in regards to our present sin. Meaning that this very day um, and, and possibly within the last hour, we have fallen short of God's glory. And yet he holds back his judgment against us. He's forbearing with our sinfulness. And then last but not least, his long-suffering should also be considered his kindness. Well, why? Because it's in regards to our future sin. The sin, the sin that we will have uh, every day moving forward until we're no longer upon this earth. And so God knows that as sinners, we are going to sin tomorrow and the next day after that. And yet he still holds back his judgment from us. And so considering all of those things, it's no surprise, I mean, if you honestly think about it, uh, it's no surprise that Paul describes those three aspects of God's character to us as his riches. I mean, when was the last time you looked at God's character and you thought of that? Riches. Man, God's kindness, God's love, God's mercy, that's rich. When was the last time we prayed that? Thanking God for those specific, and that's what Paul is saying. Those things are God's riches unto us as his children. And and if you think about it even further than that, knowing how great God's kindness truly is to us, it is a great sin to presume upon the graciousness of God. I mean, honestly, we easily come to believe that we deserve God's love. We easily come to believe that we deserve forgiveness and we deserve long-suffering, right? But that's not, that's not true at all. We, we are then presuming upon the graciousness uh, of God. Men have often thought about the forbearance and long-suffering of God as a weakness. In fact, I had a conversation with somebody probably three or four weeks ago as somebody who was not a believer, someone who has been a friend of mine for a long, long time, and they told me if there was a God in heaven, how come he hasn't struck me dead? And I initially in my flesh wanted to be like, you're stupid for, for even saying something like that. But then he begins to move further in the conversation and he goes, I've actually said that out loud to God and when it did not happen, when I was not struck dead, I thought to myself, see, there is no God. There is no God. And and I, I was overwhelmed in that moment. I was burdened for that person in that moment. As I'm having this conversation, now this person knows I'm a pastor, knows I love the Lord, 
knows that I lead my family that way, knows, knows what I'm about, knows all about my, we, we've, like I said, we, we've talked since I was a child. I've grown up with this individual. And I thought to myself that night as I'm having this conversation, men misinterpret God's forbearance and long-suffering, and in so, they refuse to repent because they believe it's God's approval of what they're doing. And so they don't repent. And many people also misunderstand the goodness of God towards the wicked at the same time. Uh, they don't understand the entire reason for it. And so it is to lead one to repentance is exactly what Paul said. Don't you know that it is the goodness or the kindness of God that leads one to repentance? Like men and women and children it should see the goodness of God and they should understand that God has, has been better to them than they deserve is really what, what we should see. And, and we should know that God has shown us more kindness even when we've, we've ignored him. Have you ever found that in your own life? But that, that God has, has shown you kindness even when you mocked him? I mean, because that's what's going on. I mean, if you think about it in our culture, like God is not some cruel master. Uh, and that's the, such a misperception mis, uh, of Christianity is that, that God is some cruel master, and he's not. He's honestly waiting for people to surrender so that he can lead them to safety. He can lead them there. And, and, and God is then served simply from gratitude by those things alone. When you, when you think about this life, so I have a question this, this evening. A question that I've been asking myself at various times. A question that I discussed with my wife for the last week. And, and, and it may kind of catch you a little bit off guard, but it's this. Are you waiting for God to drive you to repentance? Are you waiting for God to drive you to repentance? You're like, well, wait, wait. It just said that the, the kindness of God leads one to repentance. The, the kindness of God. So I want to I ask you a question. Do you believe, and this is not a trick question, okay? Do you believe God drives people to repentance? Yeah, go ahead. I would totally agree with your answer. No, no. Yeah. They are. Vastly different. God doesn't work uh, like that. He does not drive people to repentance. He leads them. He leads them. The Lord does not drive anybody to get down onto their knees. I want to I kind of throw this out there to you because I've had conversations with people here in this church that almost have that mentality. And then not to name names, and I'm not going to stand up here and have anybody get up and, and say, well, that would be me. The, the, the thing is here, I mean, if we, just think about this with me. If we have this mentality that we're not going to change until God forces us to change, you're never going to change. You're not. That's not how this works. God's waiting for, for you to submit to him to submit to him and his life, and then the Holy Spirit can begin to work. Think about, the, think about the Old Testament with me for a moment. Cain, Cain was driven away from God because he killed his brother. 
And you want to know where Cain is talked about in the New Testament? In comparison with Judas. And what happened to Judas? Judas was driven by the shame of his choice to, to surrender Christ. And what happened? Judas killed himself. Judas killed himself. He, they were both driven men, not driven by Christ, but driven by external forces that moved them. Yes. Sure. So that's where his love for us. Right. And Paul says that, right? And we're going to address that in Romans chapter 5. And God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, the, the, the sweetest and the best repentance is that which comes not by driving, but by drawing. By drawing. Yeah. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. Yes, he, he doesn't violate our will. I think there was a song um, that we used to talk about all the time that said that, that our will will not be violated, but he will make us willing to go. That the Holy Spirit will not violate our will, but he will make us willing to go. So that, that we want to follow. You know, in the New Testament, um, repentance is not simply negative. Most people view repentance as something negative, but I don't believe uh, scripture paints that picture for us. I, I believe that repentance is a turning to a new life that's found in Christ. Well, we're turning away from our sin and ourself, and we're turning towards someone, and in this case, the perfect someone. And then because of that, we see a life of action that is followed by that. I mean, James talks about how faith without works is dead, and he's talking about how our faith in Christ will lead us to do the things that we have been called and commanded to do. So it should not be confused repentance should not be confused with remorse with remorse someone someone try to give me their best definition or explanation of those two repentance versus remorse yeah okay You have to change. I would say that, that, re, that remorse is a deep sorrow for sin, but, but a lack of the positive notes of repentance or, or the lack of willingness to change. It was Paul himself who said to the church at Corinth that it was godly repentance that works, works what? Life or it brings life. But earthly sorrow breeds death and destruction. That's what remorse is. Remorse is earthly sorrow that breeds death and destruction. And because of these things, men presume upon the graciousness of God. And Paul could rightly say here that the moralist is treasuring up wrath in the day of wrath. Because of that very thought. Because I'm presuming upon the, God, uh, the graciousness of God, you are treasuring up wrath in the day of wrath. Now, I have a question. I have a question. 
Um, the, the moralist thinks that he treasures up merit with God because he condemns the sinful actions of the other, right? But he's treasuring up the, the wrath of God. So as men treasure up the wrath of God against them, what holds back the wrath of God? God's grace, God himself, is what holds back the wrath that men are treasuring up. He holds it back out of what, what we, we saw three characteristics of God just a little bit ago. So what holds back God? There was, there was words that we saw. Yes, what, what is holding back God? I'm sorry? Forbearance being one of them, right? So our sins of today, and what's the other one? long-suffering, yes, our sins of, of the future. And so those two characteristics of God are holding back God's wrath from us. And if, in the, if we think about it, in the first coming of Jesus, right, in the very first coming of Jesus, the loving character of God was revealed with great emphasis in the first coming. But at the second coming, the second coming of Jesus it is righteous judgment that comes. For those of you who went through the Revelation Bible study, that, that's what we looked at. The righteous judgment of God upon the earth, those who rejected him. And, and so God will begin, yes, go ahead. There's not any, oh, no, I would say no. There's no equating between judgment to wrath or vice versa. I would say no. Yeah. Sure. I would I would say that well I mean well judgment still comes but we will we will escape wrath yes we as believers we will escape the wrath of God uh, right because Christ took that penalty uh, on the cross for him but the the judgment still has to come either way the judgment still has to come and so I would say yes I, I would say they they're like Siamese twins judgment and wrath are like Siamese twins in Scripture you guys you guys tracking with me what I'm saying. Yeah, does that answer your question? Okay. If you would, um, let's look now because God will, will begin to judge the moralists because their works also fall short uh, of God's perfect standard. So look with me at verse number six. At verse number six. And it says that he, um, and he's, Paul's talking about God here. He says, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patient and well-doing seek their, uh, for glory and honor and immor uh, immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Um, let's, let's keep going in verse 9. And there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Let's just stop right there at verse number 10. So this is, this, these couple of verses here uh, are awesome, but yet fearful 
uh, or, or there should be fear and thinking of this very thing. Uh, imagine if someone that you knew genuinely did good all the time. All that they genuinely did good. And they could merit their own eternal life based upon that one accord. The fact that they did good at all times. But there is no one. There is no one. Because all in some way or another have been, are, or will be self-seeking. Or they will not obey the truth. Or they will obey unrighteousness. And so it doesn't matter how hard we try to grasp that thought. All fall short of the standard of God is exactly what Paul's saying. Every single person. And God's wrath will come to all who do evil first without respect to whether that person is Jewish or whether that person is a Gentile. And he says that judgment will come to the Jew first and then to the Gentile second. Now, I want to just kind of explain something to you because Peter tells us, right? And so my wife came to me with this and she goes, well, I thought Peter told us that judgment comes to the house of the Lord first. So then how come Paul is saying that judgment comes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile? Isn't that conflicting? And so this is my explanation. Is there anyone who could take a stab at that or who would know the answer to it? Yeah. Okay. 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 So if you remember back to the last chapter, right? Romans chapter 1. What did Paul say in Romans 1.16? Don't look back there. Don't flip back and try to cheat on me now. Okay. But what did he say? He said that, that the gospel is the power unto salvation to who first? To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so he's saying in this, in this context here that wrath will come to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Meaning that judgment comes to the, the Jews first. Why? Because they were first in line for the gospel. They were first in line for the gospel. And then they were first in line for the reward. And then they were also first in line for the judgment. Okay, you guys tracking with me so far? Now, does anyone have a version of the Bible that uses the word indignation? You, you do? All right. So the word indignation there comes from the idea of boiling up. The indignation of God It is the boiling up. It's a sense of a passionate outburst is, is the wrath that, that is about to be poured out. And that word wrath comes from the idea of swelling which eventually bursts. And it's applied to, to more of an anger that proceeds out of someone's settled nature. And so because of God's forbearance and his long suffering, he is settled. But there will come a day when things boil up. His indignation will boil up and eventually his wrath will burst forth upon the earth. And so God begins to judge uh, the, the Jewish man. Look with me at verse number 11. God begins to judge the Jewish man here. In verse 11, it says, For God shows no partiality. No partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Stop right there at the end of verse 13. 
I want you to, to know in verse 11, that word partiality comes from the Greek word prosopolemsia. It's up there on the screen. For like, what? How do you spell that? And it's where we get our English word favoritism or the definition, the respecter of persons. This is the word here that's used. And it means to judge things on the basis of externals or preconceived notions. It would be a broader uh, definition here of this word. Now, some ancient rabbis in Jesus' day taught that God showed partiality towards the Jews because they were chosen from the Old Testament. And then they would say things like this, that, that God will judge the Gentiles with one measure and they will judge the Jews with a different measure. Is what the rabbis used to teach to its people. But Paul is very clear that God's righteous judgment is not withheld because someone heard the law versus someone who actually does the law. He's saying every person, every person is going to be judged. As, as people will be condemned, not because they have the law or don't have the law, they will be condemned because they sinned against the law. Does that make sense? Are you guys tracking with me on that? So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I said that, that people will, will be condemned not because they have the law or don't have the law. It will be because they sinned against the law is why there's judgment. Yes. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to answer that question about whether, whether having the law and not having the law. Correct, but I'm going to address why even not having the law is still not an excuse. When we're gonna, Paul's going to cover that very thing here in just a moment. About what do you do if you don't have the law? What if you never heard the law? So look with me, and now we're actually going to cover this. Look with me at verse number 14, and let's see, let's see what happens here. Verse number 14, it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, it says, By nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On the day when, according to the gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Stop right there. Paul explains that why the Gentiles can be condemned without the law. Like, how can you be condemned without it? And he's saying their conscience. Their conscience, which is, is the work of the law that is written in their hearts, and that alone is enough to condemn somebody. Or, or theoretically speaking, it, it, this law on the heart of man is enough to justify them. Now, before you guys panic and you're like, well, I thought we were only justified through the blood of Christ, let me explain. Let me explain. Many pagan authors in Paul's day, they referred to the unwritten law within man. They spoke of it quite frequently, and they thought of it as something that pointed man to the right way. Now, these are pagans that wrote this, the unwritten law in man that points man to the right way. And though it, it did not embody the written law, it in some ways was more important than the written law. 
a law unto themselves, is what Paul said. And that does not mean that they, oh, the obedient Gentiles made up their own law to follow. As we use the expression, a law unto oneself, what he meant was that they were obedient to the conscience that was inside of them and the work of the law that, that already resided in them because of that conscience. Does that answer that question? I mean, because in theory, a man might be excused by obeying his conscience, but unfortunately, every single man, woman, and child violates that conscience, uh, meaning that we violate God's internal revelation of himself to us, right? We, we looked at that a little bit last week. Do you guys remember what Paul said about how no man is without excuse, one, because of creation, but also because of the heart of man? The heart of man knows that God exists. And so because of that, Paul is saying that every man has violated not only our internal revelation of God, but also the external, the written law of God. Yeah. Well, we're also going to answer that question too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, in in what way? Okay, how do I? She she asked, could this be used in the debate with Calvinists? In the debate with Calvinists. So, in what way? In what way? Sure. Sure. Well, the the Calvinists' belief is that he's only revealed to his elect is what their belief is. Yeah. Yep. They 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 take a few verses that are talked about that talk about election and predestination, and they run with those in in a very obscured way uh, to get to the point uh, of saying. This is how it is, and there is no other way about it. Now, I will say, so there's, this is multifaceted to answer your question. First and foremost, I would say this. We are never meant to argue our side. We're not, so, okay, let me say this. We're not meant to debate. We're not meant to debate um, our, our side of things with people. Okay, um, we can have discussions with people about why we take the stand that we do and about our understanding of God's word and things of that nature. This is why I struggle very much with the term apologetics. Apologetics is not talked about anywhere in the Bible. That word is not even used. And to be honest with you, it's not even in the Greek or Hebrew. It was a Latin word that was used after the fact. And so the, the term apologetics for people to get up on a stage and argue with somebody else or, or argue with a crowd that comes to a mic and asks a question about the Bible is not even biblical in and of itself. We can have a discussion of why we have hope inside of us, and we should, right? Peter t tells us to be ready always to have an answer, but the the debating, I, I would walk very, like that's a very fine line that we would walk in doing so. If I was having a discussion with a Calvinist, um, there are many things that I would disagree but there are also things that I do agree with from their standpoint. There are things that John Wesley, John Wesley was called the abstract Calvinist or the, the, uh, the wayward Calvinist in some writings against him because 
George Whitfield, who was a staunch Calvinist, was John Wesley's best friend. And the reason why the Methodist and the Wesleyan church split, right? Because initially it was called the Methodist Wesleyan church, is, is what it used to be called. And the reason the split happened was because of that very thought. Was, was because one leaned a little bit more Calvinistic than the other one did. One took a very staunch, hard position to the doctrines of election and the doctrines of predestination. And so I would say just use caution in, in the term debating. But yes, uh, their, their argument on election um, could be destroyed by probably four or five hundred verses in the Bible. But that's a later discussion. So, any other questions before we move? Any other questions before we move on? Great question, by the way. Very good question. Yes? Are you anticipating how this is our second study together? Sure. Are you anticipating a break for any pastors, or will you go straight through? Typically, we go straight through okay. every week. If you, need to, if you need to use the restroom or something like that, feel free to, to, to get up and, and, and please do so. So, no, when I study the Word of God, I don't take breaks. <laughs> I, don't, I dive in and I don't come up for air. <laughs> Paul said in, in Romans 2.14 that a Gentile may by nature do the things that are contained in the law. Now I want you to note that he is very careful to not say that a Gentile could fulfill the requirements of the law, okay? Uh, he, he said that by nature they can do things according to that, but they cannot fulfill it. Why? Because God has his work within every single man, and that's the result of man's conscience, but man can corrupt the work of God within their own lives. And so that conscience varies from person to person. Like we also know that our conscience can be damaged because of sin. It can be damaged because of rebellion. But then we also know that Christ can restore that conscience. Right? Through truth, Christ can restore man's conscience. So if our, if our conscience is condemning us in a wrong way, we can take comfort in the idea that 1 John 3 made a very, very clear statement that God is greater than man's heart. God is greater than man's heart. And to be honest with you, it's a verse that I often run to in my moments of, of weakness or in my moments of overwhelming anxiety. I thank you, God, that you are greater than my thoughts Thank you, God, that you're greater than the feelings that I have right now in my mind and in my life and in my situations. And so we can, we can take comfort in the fact that our conscience can wrongly accuse us, uh, but that we can go back to truth. I was actually just talking to someone a little bit ago about speaking the gospel to ourselves in our moments of overwhelming anxiety or frustration or anger or fear and how, you know, people who have never heard God's word directly still have a moral compass that they are accountable to, and that's man's conscience. And so on this day that Paul is talking about, the, the day of wrath that Paul is talking about, no man will escape God's judgment by claiming ignorance of God. No man. Yes, Sure. 
So the reason why what I was saying was that man, because of man's conscience, he made the statement that that men were not fulfilling, but they were doing the things that were written in the law, meaning that they were following a right moral compass. But he did not use the term fulfill the requirements of the law because there was only one man who ever did that. Christ. Correct. Correct. And we're going to actually see near the end of this passage where Paul talks about how whether you have the law or not, it's not the law because God still requires righteousness. And so um, violating God's internal revelation is enough to condemn every man. Yes. Correct. Right. Right. So if you remember last week, um, the, the Pharisees added and interpreted portions of the law to make themselves look better than the other people. And they did that on purpose. We have to, we have to look like and, and seem like we, we are better than the next person. And so, yes, that, that's why their interpretations and additions to the law. Yes. Sure. Right? Yes. I mean, we, we should definitely, I would, I would definitely agree. We should, we should in our relationship with God be looking inward at our own, at our own sinfulness uh, before we ever speak uh, to, to a brother or sister. I would, I would totally agree whether or not I'm in right standing. So real quick, um, for those of you who do have questions or uh, want to say something, could we just try to talk a little bit louder? The, the room is, is, is just going to, like, sound just drives away. And so the people who are sitting in the back can't always hear. Um, and so, um, yes, so go ahead. Sure. The the only thing that I would maybe the only thing that I would maybe say say to that response about like the the like I I should like it should always be about me and and not the other person as as believers. We, we are told um, to, to call out the sinfulness in another brother or sister when we see it. 
We're, we're commanded by Scripture to do so. And so, though I, I believe that we should always check ourselves first before we, right? Because I found in my life, give me just a second, Alicia, I'll call on you. I found in my own life that it's easy for me to see the sinfulness in other people because I struggle with the same thing. Right? You guys ever find that in your life? Like, it's easy to see the sins in others that you struggle with yourself. Right? And so, yeah, we should always check ourselves that we're in the right heart and that we're being led by the Spirit to that. But we, we should, uh, when opportunity arises for us, if the door or the window is open, we, we should call out a brother or sister uh, that is living in sin. We should. Yes, go ahead. Oh, and then I'll come back to you. I didn't forget. That's good. Yes, that is so, Galatians, yes, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, yes, yes, when a brother or sister sins, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. I loved, love that verse, love that verse, um, and I don't have time to unpack it, but that, that word gentleness is, is, a very, is a very near and dear word to my heart. Uh, very near and dear, and it's and it just if I could be a hundred percent honest with you and, and be open with you, I'm I struggle at times with being gentle. Um, I do. Um, I struggle with gentleness, and and that word comes from the the Greek word meaning to to be like a horse that is is harnessed and restrained. It's not without power, but it's under control. It's under control, and and James tells us that man cannot control himself only God can control that man and so through the work of the spirit right what did he he talk about Paul talked about at the end of Galatians 5 before he even said what he did about restoring the sinful man in gentleness but he gave us the the fruit of the spirit and he said against such things there is no law meaning that we have to be walking with or in step with the Spirit, and that's how he closed out that chapter and then started with, with Galatians 6. So that's, that's a great, so Alicia, go ahead. Sure. Agreed. Totally agree. When you, when you see what the passage of Scripture where Christ talks about um, essentially addressing the plank in one's own eye before talking about the speck in a brother's was, was the address of being able to look inward first. And once you've looked inward and been able to see the areas that need to change and grow in your own life, as you begin to grow, you then with gentleness are able to talk with others about those same things. Sure. You say something to her, well, 50 years ago, you, blah, 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 blah. So who are you to say things to me now, even though your plank is gone? Sure. Yeah, so the one thing I would say to that, to the people who um, want to dig up old garbage, um, there are three qualities that I always look for in an individual 
um, before I want to invest in that person's life. Three qualities. Um, and so I'm not talking about somebody's weight here, but I'm, I'm looking for fat people. People who are faithful, available, and teachable. If you don't have a teachable spirit, you're not going to grow. You, you want to look for, if you want to invest in somebody's life, look for fat people. Look for faithful, available, and teachable people. Fat people. And Sure. Yep. And that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In a sense, in a sense, we're tr- we attempt to take the place of God in our judgment, in our humanness. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So. So violating God's internal revelation, violating man's conscience is enough to condemn every single person. Now God will then judge all nations according to the use or abuse they have made of God's word. Whether it was written into the hearts of man or whether it was written back then on stone tablets and passed on, God will judge based upon whether you used or abused his word. Now, I want us to note something here, because this is, this is a struggle for some people. Um, our culture, our culture, I would believe, uh, from my, this is just my perspective, okay? I believe our culture leans too heavily into the love slash grace of God and not enough onto the truth of God. And I believe that there needs to be more of a balanced approach um, in, in our teaching and preaching and in our, in our gospel sharing. Um, there is to be both. And the reason for that is because of this, this very thing. Paul, when he, when he spoke here, noticed that he said in the day of judgment, and that was a part of his gospel. In the day of judgment. In the day of judgment was a part of Paul's gospel. Remember what I told you last week that from, from Romans 1.18 all the way through chapter 3 verse 20, it was all our necessity to be saved from wrath. All of it. Before he even said God demonstrated his love for us, before any of that, he said you need to be saved because the wrath of God is coming. That's why. Before he got to anything else, he said wrath. In the day of, he didn't shrink away from declaring man's absolute accountability to God. He didn't shy away from it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Paul is, is, is definitely addressing, um, I mean, not, not people specifically, but nations. Yes, nations that have been around for hundreds of years um, at that point. 
And he's saying the, the judgment of God. I mean, he even says that God will judge the secrets of man's heart through Christ Jesus. And to be honest with you, it's a concept that, that is distinctively Christian, but most people overlook in this portion of Scripture. Do you know that Jews were taught in Jesus' day that only God the Father alone would be the judge of the world, saying that no one outside of God alone, not even the Messiah, could judge another person. As what, that's what the rabbis used to teach. In fact, that is one of, the, one of the big differences between Christianity and Judaism. As they, they have a belief that Christ uh, was a prophet, but not the way to get to heaven. That it was, God, it was all God the Father. It had nothing to do with God the Spirit, nothing to do with God the Son. It was all God the Father. And this is the very thought here, as Paul is saying, God is going to judge the secrets of man's heart by Christ Jesus, by his own son, is going to happen. Yes. Well, so Paul, yeah, I mean, Paul would have been 20 years into ministry at this point. Yeah, so you're talking like maybe 25 to 30 years after this. That is a really, really great question. Because I, I believe, so, I mean, if you think about it, Paul, uh, being a Pharisee himself, would have been taught everything from the Old Testament. In fact, Paul would have had to memorize and know all 613 Jewish laws. And so knowing that the judgment that came already um, to the Jews, to the Israelites, all the exiles. Paul would have known all of those things that would have occurred to them and would have probably been taught that those things happen out of judgment for Israel not following God's law then. So don't quote me on that, but I would say that a lot of it had to have been from what Paul was taught. I mean, if you think about it, Paul was Jew. Paul, he came from the tribe of Benjamin. And so Paul would have grown up learning all of the same things that all of the other Jewish boys and girls would have been taught. And then stepping into the role of a Pharisee, he would have been taught and studied even further into, into their history. And so, anybody else have anything before we move on? Now, jump with me to verse number 17. But... If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So every boast of the Jewish man in this passage concerns possession of the law. Everything that's talked about. The Jewish people of Paul's day were so extremely proud and, and confident, in fact, um, that God gave his holy law to them as a nation. And so they believed that this confirmed their status as a specifically chosen people and thus 
to them, it ensured salvation just because the law was given to them. Although the Jew who greatly received the law should see it as a gift from God, but Paul goes on to show us here in just a moment that mere possession of the law justifies nobody at all. So look at verse 21. It says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that the one must uh, not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhors idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So it comes down to this very principle. It's not going to come to the screen, uh, but I want you to write it down. It comes down to this very principle. You have the law, but do you keep it? You have the law, but do you keep it? Or what about, what about this? You see how others break the law. Do you see how you break it? You see how others break the law, but do you see how you break the law? Do you know much of the rabbinic Judaism of Paul's day interpreted the law so that they thought they were completely justified by the law. Like that was, that was how they presented it. Where we're completely justified by our interpretations of, of the law that was given. And psh, go back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus exposed the error of that interpretation in, in some of the very first words that he said uh, to the Jewish people. Because God applies his law to both our actions and our attitudes. I mean, when you, when you look at, at Scripture, you know, sometimes... I have found this in my own life, and, and if you've ever found this in your life, um, uh, hopefully this resonates with you. Um, oftentimes, we only want God to evaluate our attitude about his law, or about church, or about following, or, or maybe we only want him to sometimes evaluate our actions, but not our attitude. You ever found yourself there? Like, if it came down to it, and you were standing before God in this very moment of time, and, and God was like, well, if I were to let you into heaven, like, why should I let you into heaven? Would my actions and attitude align with what I tell people? Do, do people really know that I follow God? Do people really know that, that I'm committed to doing righteousness? Like, do people know that about you? I'm not asking you to, to, to throw yourself under the bus here. But do people know? Do people know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Right? We can't even use the term Christian anymore because it's used so flippantly in our culture. I mean, if you pulled 25 people off the street and you asked them if they were Christians, according to statistics, you'd get 75% of those people who would say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. But are you really? Are you truly following? So, so we, and, and you bludgeon me after, afterwards, right? I don't even think that we should use that terminology. Well, we, we should call ourselves, we're disciples of Jesus Christ. We're followers of Jesus Christ. Because if we're not following, if we're not following, then are we truly, are we truly Christ saved? If we're not following. I mean, not, not to get into some crazy talk and discussion here, but just 
hear me out for a moment. I mean, I, I wonder how often we who, who are trying to do what God wants us to do, that we would flippantly use the term Christian. I, I just wonder. I've asked that in my own life. Because, uh, you know, the term Christian means little Christ. But I can't be a little Christ if I'm not following in the footsteps of Jesus. If I'm, if I'm not being invested in by the word of God. If I, if I have no investment in my relationship with Jesus Christ, I can't, cannot be a disciple. I cannot be a follower if I'm not allowing for the investment of God's word into my life. I just can't be. And, and I believe that that's why so many things were spoken so harshly to the Pharisee. Well, I, I gave. I, I pray. I, I, I went to church. I even, I even led. I, I was a leader in some capacity. Right? So check that off too. My crown in heaven is going to look jam. I... Yeah, go ahead. And then, and then. <laughs> yeah. Sure. He, right. So he, he was asked, you know, are you a Christian? And his response to that was, is that like a Baptist or something like that? And, and the response or the answer in return was, no, it's much more than that. And because of, of the example of, of his wife uh, some 40 years ago, um, he, he began to realize and understand what being a follower, what being a, a true Christian uh, was. So... Back then she wasn't, yes, yeah. Yeah, back then she wasn't your wife. Yes, go ahead. Sure. Sure. Right. Right. So, I mean, think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Um, in that day, there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, like we prophesied in your name and we... We healed in your name. Like we did all of these things. And what does Jesus say? He's going to say to them, depart from me for I did not know you. Meaning that there was no relationship with God. There was no seeking. There was no investment in the relationship with God. And I think Paul is just reiterating 
Jesus' teaching. That, that I believe wholeheartedly that's what Paul is, is, is just reiterating. Everything that Paul teaches was the gospel that he encountered. I mean, think about it. I mean, think about the way uh, that, that Paul was converted, right? He met Christ on the road to Damascus and was blinded. And following being blinded, what did he do? Did he immediately go and teach? Did he immediately go share the gospel? No. Paul spent time studying and studying. Why? I mean, Paul already knew the Jewish law. Why did Paul study? Well, because he was trying to look at it from a different perspective. I need, to, I need God's word to, to make a stamp upon me so that I can share the gospel. And so everything that Paul says was gospel driven. It was all things that he was taught or was imparted through, through the words of God. And so well, we begin to see how, how um, you know, Paul talks about how circumcision is irrelevant. And this is a, there's a whole argument here um, about this topic that we're not going to get into. And so if you have questions about it, just come, just come and talk to me afterwards. So we don't, I don't really have the time uh, to dive in, but look at verse 25 with me. And we're just going to read to the end here. It says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you um, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but of God. And that's the end of chapter 2. So Paul recognized here at the very end that the Jews would protest and say that his salvation was based upon the fact that he was a descendant of Abraham. That he was one who was circumcised according to the law. But Paul rightly answered saying it's irrelevant in regards to justification. Like the Jew believed that his circumcision guaranteed his salvation. But uh, he even would go as far as to say, I might be punished. I might be punished in the world to come, but I could never be lost. That would have been the thought of the Jew. But in Paul, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So some words of advice. Some words of advice. If you're listening to this, um, and you don't want to see graphic images on the internet, I, I would actually tell you to avoid graphic images on the internet. Um, please do not Google why Abraham's servant placed his thigh. Um, upon him at circumcision, Co come to the church and, and talk to myself. Go talk to another pastor. 
Um, go talk to another pastor. You know, that the Jew believed, the Jew believed that his circumcision guaranteed his salvation. He thought it guaranteed it. Now, he's saying, like, I might be punished in the world to come, but there's no way I could be lost because of that. Now, in Paul's day, rabbis also taught that Abraham would sit at the gates of hell to ensure that none of his circumcised were descendants there. That that's what, that's what the Jews used to teach. Rabbi used to teach this in Paul's day, that, he, that Abraham sat at the gates of hell to ensure that, listen, circumcision, and I'm even going to throw this out there too, right? Baptism or any other ritual itself has no saving power. Not communion, nothing, nothing. No child dedication, now, those things do not save us. And we're going to talk a little bit more about baptism as we go. And, and I hope to be able to address, I mean, there's a, there's a belief that, that you can't get into heaven unless you've been baptized. Uh, there's a, it's called baptismal regeneration. And I will hope to address that in the coming weeks. But in, if you think about it and you study out the ancient world, if you go back, uh, how many of you know anything about the Egyptian culture from, from Christ's day, aside from watching the Prince of Egypt? Anybody? Okay, so if you read anything about the Egyptian culture, the Egyptians also circumcised their children, also. But just because they circumcised their children did not make them followers or, or worshipers of the one true God. It was an act uh, of something that they adopted. I mean, think back to the Genesis, and I'm glad that you brought this up, right? Abraham's son, Ishmael, the son of my flesh, is what Abraham says, was circumcised. But that circumcision did not make him the son of the covenant. Isaac was. And so the circumcision had nothing at all to do with his salvation. Essentially, circumcision and baptism, they do the same thing as a label on a can of vegetables. That's literally all they do. They, they label. And if you think about that as well, the outer label doesn't always necessarily match what's inside the can. What if I had a can of carrots and on the outside of it I put a label on it that said peas? It doesn't change what's inside the can, right? And being born again by the shed blood of Jesus Christ changes what's inside the can and then you're able to, to put the appropriate label upon it. Now, of course, that's not a new thought, though. That's not a new thought. Moses told the Israelites in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 10, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. He told them to go, be circumcised, follow after God, and then live in this way. It was, a, it was a change. And so I have a question, right? If a Gentile were to keep the righteous requirements of the law through his conscience, would he not be justified? Would he not be justified? If a Gentile were to keep the right, and this is, this is a trick question, guys. If, the, if a Gentile were to keep the righteous requirements of the law through his conscience, would he not be justified instead of the circumcised Jew who did not keep the law? Yeah.
Correct. Correct. And the reason why I asked the question was to ensure that we are all 100% aware that we cannot be justified by doing good things. Like, if you walk away tonight with nothing else, nothing else, walk away with this. You can be justified by nothing that you do. Nothing, period. The only way that we are justified is how? Yes, through Christ, through Christ. And so I'm going to tell you something right now, okay? One of the ways that I agree with Calvinists is through Christ alone or in Christ alone, right? One of the ways that I agree with them is that very thought. Sola, solo Cristo, in Christ alone or by Christ alone is the only way to get to heaven. And I believe I wholeheartedly that, that the reason why, why he emphasized so hard of having the law or having a ceremony is not being enough is because God requires righteousness. God requires righteousness. And so he said, he said, will, will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Paul was saying that all the outward signs of religion may earn us the praise of man, but they will not earn us the praise of God. None of it. And the evidence of our rightness with God is not contained, uh, contained in some outward sign or some outward work. And it's not assured because of our parentage. Uh, the evidence is found in the work of God in the heart of man and it shows itself by its fruit. What did Jesus say to his disciples? They will know you're my disciples by your what? By your fruit. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It, I mean, I've shared with, with you guys before. I mean, I grew up in a church that was very legalistic, uh, one that taught self righteousness. Um, and it was a list of do these things or you go to hell. It was, that was how I was taught the Bible. And. Um, man, you guys think Catholics are bad. You guys should have come to the church where I grew up. Like, I, I thought every other day I was going to hell because I, I you know, I dressed a certain way or, you know, and I, I shared with you about what my grandparents said about my grandma. She, she literally came to me and told me my tattoos and piercings were portholes to hell. So, like, I, I get it. And, but that's, I know it, it makes people laugh now, but that was, that was the serious, like, she was dead serious when she said it to me. Your tattoos and piercings are portholes to hell. And I'm like, well, man, good thing God's grace is sufficient or something for my life. I, I mean, if, I do not believe that it's wrong to want to live your life according to the law. I do not believe that's wrong at all. I believe it's wrong when we present ourselves in a way that we are holier than the next person. I don't see anywhere in scripture that I can attain a greater holiness than the holiness that was given through Jesus Christ. I don't see that. And in fact, my sanctification, I mean, if you really look at it, our sanctification is to be set apart for holy use. Our sanctification is more for the next person than it is for ourselves. if you really think about it. 
It's set apart for holy use. Uh, so the, the people around us can see the growth and change that occurs inside of our lives. And so I don't believe flaunting um, in that way, it, it's, it's counterproductive, really. Now, I want to close, I want to close this out um, w- with something that I'm going to call the, the seven great principles of God's judgment. Seven great principles. They're going to be on the screen for you. Okay? These are things that we learn specifically from this passage about God's judgment. Okay? And I believe that they're, they're worth noting. And so if, I'm not going to linger here long, so if you miss them, you can come up afterwards and get them. So the first one comes from Romans 2.2. God's judgment is always according to truth. Always. God's judgment is always according to truth. Okay, the second one is God's judgment is according to accumulated guilt. Now, before you say guilt, what? I'm not talking about human guilt. I'm talking about that we are guilty because of our sinfulness. So accumulated sin before God. Romans 2.5. I'll give you guys a little bit because you guys are like, hurry up. You need a pen? (laughs) God's judgment is according to works. Romans 2 6. These are all things that we've looked at tonight. So none of these are new concepts. These are, I'm just giving you a nice list uh, of what they are. God's judgment is without partiality, meaning it is without favoritism. It's equal across the board. That every person, every, it doesn't matter where you came from, every person receives the judgment of God. God's judgment is according to actions, not knowledge. Actions, not knowledge. This is Romans 2.13. This kind of ties in with judgment according to works. He kind of restated that um, there in, in verse number 13. God's judgment also reaches the secrets of of the heart. Romans 2.16. The secrets of the heart. And then last but certainly not least. God's judgment is according to reality. Not religious profession. And that's the last 11 or 12 verses there.
Sure, sure. So I want to just end in a question, and if you got a jet, that's perfectly fine. So in a, in a passage here that focused so much on God's judgment, Paul praised God's kindness. Paul praised God's kindness. So how do those two, uh, those two characteristics... Um, uh, maybe those those two um, aspects of God's character work together in God's gospel. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, what if I said we all deserve God's righteous judgment? Oh, okay, I was just, just making sure. <laughs> How else? In a portion of scripture that looked at God's judgment, Paul praised God's kindness. So how do, how do those two, how do those two aspects of God's character work together in the gospel? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, God is always, always fair in that judgment because of, of what he gives. Anything else that we want to add to that? Nothing? What was your biggest takeaway from tonight? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yep. Sure. Sure. Uh, agreed. hear you. Anybody else? What was your biggest takeaway? Yeah. One particular verse that stood out to me that we had not before. And it's in the NIV, which I know you're Because of your stubborn, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you 
Yeah. I believe a lot of Paul's language is, is very strong. I mean, remember what I said last week, right? There was a possibility that Paul was never even going to see these people in person. And so this is a letter. They, they would be reading, right? I, I was talking about letters on, on Sunday, right? When we launched our Malachi series and, and the whole thing is a letter that was written to those people. Imagine you received that. And this, this is it right here. Paul's like, I may not make it to you in person. So I'm going to say all the things to you. Um, and <laughs> I don't know. Well, we know that Zacchaeus was was one of the smallest people in the Bible. So was Nehemiah. Yeah. Sorry, that was really bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> but the shortest man in the Bible was Bildad the shoe height. Bildad the shoe height. He's the shortest man in the Bible. <laughs> I got dad jokes for days. I got dad pastor jokes for days. <laughs> Anything else? So this is this is what I'm going to actually leave you with um, to send send you guys out and and to be thinking on. Um, You know, we, as, as believers and followers of, of Christ here in Ionia, I know not everyone lives here in Ionia, and I, I get that, I understand that. But we've been called to be disciple makers. The Word of God calls us to make disciples, and that's, that's not just see converts one to Christ. Uh, that that disciple making is investing into the lives of other people, and I've been more and more burdened. Um, the The longer that I've been in ministry, I've been more and more burdened for for people. Um, many of you don't don't know, uh, just because I don't have the opportunity to to sit with every single one of you on a weekly basis. But discipleship is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I love nothing more than investing into somebody else um, and doing life with, with people. And uh, my life has radically changed the moment that I realized that the disciple-making process was not just going door-to-door, sharing the gospel, and inviting someone to church. And because of that, um, I've been more and more burdened to continue to push our church to becoming more and more uh, discipleship-minded to being a church that invests into the lives of other people because uh, people can't learn, um, they, they just won't. People don't even know where to start. I've talked with a half dozen people in the last two weeks uh, and I've had the same question come up, maybe worded a little bit differently, but I don't even know where to start reading in the Bible is a common question that I receive. And so when, when you have someone walk alongside of you, when you have someone vesting into your life, and so I, have, I just have a question, and it's not for you to answer. It's for you to really be toying with, meditating upon in your thoughts. And it's this. With these two chapters of Scripture that we've studied last week and this week, um, how could I use what I've learned to invest in somebody else's life? 
How could I, how could I use? I'm not asking you to get up and teach a class on it. It's not what I'm saying. But how could I use that to invest? Because to be 100% honest with you, um, according to scripture, if we are not making disciples, we're, we're, not, we're not doing the commandment of God. From Christ, out of Christ's own mouth, if we're not investing into the lives of other people, then we're, we're not following Christ. We're not. And so how, how can we change that in your life? Like, I, I get it. Not, everyone, not everyone's going to be, you know, the biggest and best biblical scholar that's out there. Uh, but there is something that you, you can give to somebody else who's not as far along. And so how can we do that? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, discipleship is doing life, uh, doing gospel life with somebody else. So I'm not, not asking for all these crazy answers. It's just something to be thinking, thinking about. How can I invest in the life of somebody else? So, love you guys. I'll see you Sunday. Yeah. When in my doubts, in my failures, you.